How is your relationship with your money? Would your money want to date you if it were a person? In this episode, find out how to improve your relationship with money, how to navigate finances in a partnership, and deal with your own money baggage. This week's episode is going to be juicy, and I hope you love it. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Nicole Icavoni, a financial therapist and licensed couples therapist with 17 years experience who teaches women entrepreneurs how to make tending to their finances feel fun and flirty instead of boring and overwhelming. Love it. Through her trademark program, Money Therapy, Nicole helps entrepreneurs make more profits, manage their money with Beyonce-level confidence, and transform their toxic relationship with money into a steamy love affair. Nicole has been featured in CNBC, Business Insider, and Elephant Journal. When she's not empowering women to take a more active role in their financial lives, you can find her chilling with her chickens on her little farmette, devouring self-help books, and sipping on vanilla lattes. So excited to have you on the show. I can tell we're going to be fast friends already. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love everything that you're doing, and I'm like in love with everything just reading your bio. So super excited to chat with you on the show. I'm excited to chat with you because I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time, and um, I love your approach that you took to paying off your debt. I mean, your your book, Dear Debt, is just awesome. I think it's really inspiring for people. So this is such a joy to be able to connect with you. Ah, love it. Love mutual admiration society and <laughs> glad to share our conversation with our listeners. So I know that you work as a financial therapist and I know you mentioned that you listened to the Wendy Wright episode, yes. which was phenomenal. It and was. so I'm interested in hearing your perspective as a financial therapist. You know, how can people start to shift their money mindset as you've you know, heard in our conversation, so many people's hangups with money comes back to a core issue around money mindset. So what are those first steps that people should take when working to shift their money mindset? This is a great question. And it's why I do the work that I do, because I've seen so many people who feel 
really overwhelmed by money, really confused by it. It seems like money feels like this complex, complicated, elusive sort of thing that's hard to understand. And so one of the very first steps that we can take to change our money mindset and to look at money in a whole new way is to personify money. So to give it a personality, to give it a character, to almost make it human-like, which might seem a little weird, but the thing about it is that when we do this, then our, our minds can understand it better. It just makes more sense. It feels more relatable to us. And if you think about it, we are all in a relationship with money, right? Because we handle money every day, we make decisions with it, we work to earn money, we spend money or save money every day. So we're in this constant ongoing relationship with money. And so the other thing that we can do to really shift our mindset around it is to view and treat our relationship with money much like we do a romantic relationship because there are a lot of similarities between the two. And we have experience with romantic relationships, right? Like at some point in the line, we've dated somebody, we've had a committed relationship, maybe we're married. So that's very familiar and more comfortable to us. It makes more sense to us. So when you start looking at the money relationship from that same lens, then money starts to make more sense and feel more comfortable and is more relatable. And it reduces that overwhelm, that confusion, that anxiety that comes with dealing with money and just changes the entire dynamic around it. Oh, I love that, especially because I started Dear Debt as a way to break up with my debt. And the whole Dear Debt project, the Dear Debt letters were this personification of debt and me writing these breakup letters to debt because it was a way for me to humanize debt and to you know say I'm breaking up with you and really helped me in my debt repayment journey and then now that obviously I've been debt free for a few years I try to think of money as something that is a compassionate partner alongside with me in my life and to write a love letter to money so you know, while I was writing a breakup letter to debt, now it's all about writing love letters to money. So I love this example because I think it's super relevant and important. And how can we figure out how to make money our best friend, our ally, someone that we are in a steamy relationship with? I think that's so crucial. Absolutely. And and you are like living proof of the power of personification. I mean, you paid off an, a massive amount of debt by doing this. And I did too. I was $87,000 in debt. I was Ooh. trying to grow my business. I was losing money every day, feeling the anxiety around, okay, what am I going to do if I don't start making money? And the relationship that I had with money during that time in my life was really toxic <laughs> because I was sort of like smack talking my money every day in my own mind. Like mm -hmm. there's never enough money and it doesn't do enough for me. And, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And, and when is money ever going to be there for me? And I think a lot of people do that too, is like this internal dialogue of how they're viewing money, how they're thinking and feeling about money and our thoughts and our feelings influence all of our decisions and all of our behaviors. And so that's where this really comes into play. Because if you start trying to behave different with money, that isn't necessarily going to work because your thoughts and your feelings about money are always influencing those behaviors. We can't start there. We have to back it up and deal with some of the underlying thoughts and feelings that are sabotaging our efforts to gain control over our financial lives. 
Yeah, totally. And, you know, if we are always smack talking money and saying these horrible things, it's like, of course, our money is not going to be there for us. Right. You know, a concept that I have thought about just the past year or two that has been really revolutionary for me is if money was a person, Mm -hmm. would money date you? Mm Mm-hmm. Or would money dump you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think that's so important to think about because when you truly are like, oh man, if money was a person, Mm -hmm. would they actually want to be with me? Yes. I'm always (laughs) asking myself, am I a good girlfriend to my money? (laughs) And what can I do to love up on it more? Like, How can I invest in this relationship? What can I do to nurture my relationship with money? How can I appreciate the money that I have more? How can I respect money more? And when you start asking yourself those questions, it becomes abundantly apparent the areas for growth that you can work on and and how you can do better and how you can continue to grow in your financial life. Yes. Yes. I love that so much. So how can people make their relationship with money more fun and less scary? Because people who may be just starting out on their financial journey, trying to pay off debt, getting started with investing, it can seem very overwhelming. It can feel scary. It can feel boring. Yes. So what can we do to make it more fun, more sexy, steamy, flirty, as you say? Yes, for sure. <laughs> this is this is like my mantra. Like this is my life's work is, is <laughs> helping to make money feel more fun and flirty and exciting and playful instead of a real drag. Because when things are boring or confusing or overwhelming, we don't want to do them. You know, we, we don't want to pay attention to our finances. We don't want to tend to them regularly. So making it fun is a really important part of this process. And one way to do that is to date your money. Okay, so if you're personifying money and you're giving it a character and you know that you're in a relationship with money, think about what you do with your romantic partner. You have date nights, right? Like for fun and playfulness and connection and to catch up with each other and have quality time together, right? So you want to do that very same thing with your money. So what I started doing was scheduling weekly money dates, about an hour, doesn't have to be a lot of time, but doing them consistently. And I would plan something fun or I would add a little treat or reward to it. And I would come to those money dates from a place of curiosity. You know, like instead of pulling up spreadsheets and reconciling bank accounts and, you know, all that sort of boring, tedious stuff, I would look at transactions or I would look at my financials and I'd be like, okay, what's going on with my money? What's it been up to this week? Where's it been going? What has it been doing? How am I feeling about that? Or I would use a money date to dream of the future. You know, how often do we do that with our partners? We're like, oh, just picture it. Imagine taking this luxurious vacation or imagine what retirement's going to be like. And we come up with all these great dreams. Well, we can do that with our money too. And that process can be very fun and playful. And we're not coming at it from this place of like, oh, I suck at money. I'm so bad at this. I'm never going to get my business together here. You know, um, We're not coming at it from judgment. We're coming at it from curiosity and interest and playfulness. So I think that's a really important shift to make. You know, It's like dating your money, viewing it like a partner, being really playful with it, spending this quality time with your money, taking a look at your finances from this place of curiosity because that can really change the way that you feel. And it also makes you look forward to tending to your finances regularly, which is an important part of gaining control and being more actively involved in your own financial life. 
Yes, you know, they say that our longest relationship is with ourselves, which is true, but I would also say it's also with our money. So if we think, you know, from birth to death, that our longest relationship will be with ourselves, but also with our money, then yeah, how can we create that lifelong partnership that my money has my back, I take care of my money, and, mm-hmm. you know, I can create these money dates where it's actually fun to look at my money, that mm-hmm. if things aren't going quote well with my money that I can just look at the situation and assess what's going on instead of berate myself instead of berate money you know it once again if you're in a partnership no one wants to be with someone that's constantly complaining about themselves or right. their partner <laughs> absolutely you know, that's not fun or sexy so i think you know the partnership analogy is is super worthwhile and you know something that's really helped me with my money mindset and taking care of my money is having a money mission statement. Mm -hmm. Like what is the goal of my money? Because money can seem so amorphous. Like we know that we need it to pay bills, but then what? Yeah. But if you have a dream, if you have a goal, if you have a vision for your life, then it suddenly it makes sense. And for me, I want to support women entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs of color, I want to support other small businesses. I want to support local. Those are things that are really important to me. And so whenever I'm making a decision about my spending or my saving or my investing, I try to figure out how can I support that goal and that mission? And how can I use my money in a way that is in alignment with my values? And that's another way to kind of reconnect with your money and the goal of of having money in the first place. Yeah, the goal is really to create this reciprocal relationship with your money, which is exactly what you're describing. It's mutually beneficial. You do things for your money, you know, like the work I do is for money. The time and energy that I invest in my business or my clients or my programs, that is me doing things for my money to earn it, right? The decisions mm-hmm. that I make, you know, like investing it or saving it or donating it, that is for my money. And then in exchange, my money takes good care of me, right? It's going to be like my paycheck for life as I see my investments grow. It is going to take care of me when, you know, I have increased healthcare needs or I need assisted living or I'm ready to Mm -hmm. stop working and it's going to support me. And so it's this ongoing give and take between yourself and what you do for money and your money and what it does for you. And in money therapy, I I do this really fun thing. Uh, It's like a play on the five love languages, which is something a lot of people know about because we all have a love language that really speaks to us, how we like to receive love. And so I relate that to money. You know, what is our love language and what are we wanting our money to do for us to show us love? And then if money were a person, what would our money's love language be? So how can we speak to our money and show love and appreciation to it from that perspective? And it's a really really fun play on like a couple's therapy idea that is really prevalent that just drives home this point that you are in a reciprocal, mutually beneficial relationship with money. And just like a romantic relationship with another person, it requires investment and care and time and all of that. I love that. By the way, my love languages are acts of service and words of affirmation. (laughs) So I'd I'd love to hear more about that. Like, how do you um, work with that with your money? Because I think that's such a fascinating concept. And I'm a big fan of the love language concept as a way to 
relate to your partner in a better way and to understand how people, A, want to receive love and then also how people give love because they're not necessarily the same. Exactly. Exactly. I am a words of affirmation, love language type of person too. So if you relate that to money and I think about, okay, what do I want from money? What do I want it to do for me to make me feel loved up on? Because I'm a words of affirmation person, what I really want my money to do is to show the world how successful I am, to sing my praises, right? Like, look at everything I've accomplished. Look at everything I've achieved. Look at how I've built this business myself. Look how competent I am. Look at how well I'm serving, right? So if I have a lot of money, then I can say, look how successful I am. This shows that... I've reached my goal. I've done what I've set out to do. I'm making important contributions in the world. Or if you're an acts of service love language, what you might be wanting from your money is for it to take care of you, right? Like to give you the day off or to give you the vacation so you can take a break from all of the acts of service that you're doing all the time to help you relax and rest and recharge. So that might be what you're really wanting from your money is to support you so that you can rest more, you can take more time off, or so you can retire early. So these are just a couple examples of how this idea around love languages can tie into the money relationship and what we're wanting our money to do for us. Love that. So, you know, with any big change, there's a lot of fear that can creep in and you can crave going back to safety instead of growth. This is, you know, a common issue for people that are making a big life change, especially related to their money. What can people do to combat that when they start to sense that it might shift the course or the direction Mm -hmm. of where they're going? This is a great question. And first, I want to say that the mind is quirky. Okay. And (laughs) one of the things that the mind is naturally inclined to do is always be scanning the environment, looking for opportunities to experience pleasure and avoid pain. So every single minute of every single day, our minds are working to find out what is going to make us feel good and what we can do to avoid any type of pain or distress. So when you start doing new things particularly with money. You know, you're you're working on goals, you're trying to make progress. You're going to feel this pull of resistance because you're doing something new and our brains love habit and repetition and routine. So you're going to feel that resistance to go back to old ways. However, when we feel that resistance, it seems painful, right? So we want to resist that. We want to avoid that pain. And that can make us revert back to old habits. So one thing that I have found to be helpful is to focus on the seeking pleasure part instead of the avoiding pain part. (laughs) Because if you're focusing Mm. on avoiding pain, you're going to want to go back to those old habits that felt very comfortable for you but weren't necessarily serving you very well. But if you focus on pleasure, then you're going to be focusing on the feeling that you desire, the feeling that you're going to get when you have what you want, whether that be paying off all your debt, whether it be saving six months in an emergency fund, whether it be increasing your income in some way, right? Like we think about what we desire and it's not really the thing that we want. It's not the debt payoff that we want. It's not the early retirement that we want. It's not the pay raise that we want. We want the feeling 
behind those things. Like what it would feel like to have financial security and the the peacefulness of not having debt hang over your head. What it would feel like to be able to wake up in the morning and do whatever the heck you want and not have to go to work. <laughs> what it would feel like to have the security knowing that you have six months worth of expenses sitting there at the ready whenever you need it, right? So by focusing on this feeling, this desire, that's focusing on the pleasure. And then that's going to be a motivator to keep working and going and doing these new and different things that you're doing for the benefit of your money relationship and your financial life. The other thing that I find really helpful is to celebrate small wins along the way. Because yes. when you do this, it motivates you to keep going. You know, it makes it worth mm -hmm. it. And it's like these little benchmarks that show you're getting closer and closer and closer to this bigger overarching goal. And I think this is where some people make the mistake of just waiting until the, the big goal is accomplished before they celebrate. Because then you can lose steam and it can feel like a real drag and it can feel like you're never going to get there and that makes you want to quit. <laughs> but mm -hmm. when we celebrate these these small wins, it can it can give us this sense of accomplishment every step of the way and we enjoy the journey and the process more. Um and it's not just about that end goal or the destination, it is also about the journey and everything that you learn about yourself along the way. Yes, you brought up so many great points and I first want to acknowledge that, you know, what you said about you're striving for that feeling of something, right? And I think that's super important in money mindset work because as we've talked a lot about on this podcast, if you don't do the internal work to adjust your money mindset, you can reach six figures, you know, half a million, a million, and still feel like there's not enough because you haven't done the internal work. And so remember that you're focusing on that feeling of having enough and that number can vary for different people. But if you can really get that mindset hooked in and feel that in your body that I have enough, mm -hmm. regardless of how much is in my bank account, then you can have that feeling. And then it's all growth with your money and you already ha can ha access that feeling. And you're not, you know, just waiting until this one benchmark to feel yeah. okay. Right. And I love that you said to seek pleasure because yeah, when we're constantly feeling uncomfortable and feeling pain, yeah. Then we just want to go back to our comfort zone because yeah. like, ah, oh, this is too scary. This is a threat. This is lots of anxiety. I'm going to go back. But if you focus on the pleasurable experiences, the pleasurable feeling of what is this going to look like? And that's exactly what I did with my debt repayment is I created a debt-free dream list of all the things that I was going to do when I paid off my debt. And that included moving back to LA, getting two cats, taking my mom to Italy, all of which I've done. But, you know, while I was in a different place in my life, that kept me motivated. And yeah, I also, you know, because I was paying off debt for years and, you know, when you're making <laughs> thousand plus dollar payments mm -hmm. for years, it's easy to have debt fatigue and yeah. it's not like I had this story of like, I paid this off in six months or a year. Like I rewarded myself. So I had benchmarks of, of like, I paid off a thousand dollars. 
I'm going to have, you know, a little happy hour yes. or I paid off $5,000. I'm going to go to the local massage school and get a cheapy massage. Yep. I paid off $10,000. I'm going to go on a little day trip. And, you know, while I was debt blogging, some people were like, oh, you shouldn't spend that much money while you're paying off debt. And it's like, you know what? <laughs> I'm paying off debt for years yes. and I need to have some motivation. So for me, I'm all about positive reinforcement if it's not going to seriously deter your debt repayment and it's going to actually keep you going because it's positive reinforcement, I mean, yeah. I don't see the harm in that at all. Exactly. And it's about balance too because we don't want to get into this place where we feel deprived. It's not about deprivation. It's about making smart decisions that are going to serve us well. Okay. It's just like, okay, do I eat a salad or do I eat dessert? It doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both right? Mm -hmm. That creates balance. So yes, you want to pare down your expenses. You want to increase your income. You want to pour as much money as you possibly can on your debt if that's your goal to pay it off as quickly as possible. But that doesn't mean that you eliminate all pleasure, all fun, all joy, all spending from your life. You know, that that takes all the fun and joy out of the process. It's just being very mindful and thoughtful about how much money you want to spend and what you want to spend it on. And and that comes back to knowing your values also. Like I can hear from your bucket list of things that you planned to do after you paid off your debt, what your values are. Like obviously you love animals, like kitties, mm -hmm. like that's your thing. You value having relationships with animals. You obviously value the relationship with your mom. You obviously value travel, right? You were choosing to spend your money on very specific things that align with your values. Where we get hung up and where most of us find ourselves in debt <laughs> is when we're not clear on our values and we just spend money on everything. Every shiny object that comes into our lives and we're like, oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. We want it all. So part of this too is getting really clear on what you value and only spending money on those things. And that's like, I don't know, three to five things, not a hundred things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then allowing yourself some money, maybe not a lot, but some to spend on the things that are most important to you. Because, you know, like if you're viewing your money relationship as a romantic relationship, you wouldn't want to be like, okay, we are not having any fun together. We're not going on any dates. We have to sacrifice everything that feels good to us so that we can get out of debt. We can pay off the mortgage early. We can whatever it is. Your partner is going to look at you and be like, this relationship sucks. Count <laughs> yeah. me out. I'm, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in this relationship. <laughs> exactly. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I wanted you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes. And take a deep breath and exhale. Take a deep breath again and exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. Talking about relationships, uh, you also work as a couples therapist. And so, you know, money 
and relationships create a lot of conflict. And so I'm curious, what are the most common top money issues you see with couples? Mm -hmm. Yeah, money is the number one thing that couples fight about, interestingly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that I see really commonly is this um, spender versus saver dynamic, where Mm -hmm. one person in the relationship is more inclined to spend and the other is more inclined to save. And they cannot agree (laughs) on how much to spend or what to spend the money on. And here again, it comes down to competing values. You know, they don't have these shared values or they don't know what their values are. So they can't have productive conversations around those values to really pinpoint what it is that they want to spend money on. And we all have our own underlying fears about money, our own underlying beliefs about money, our own previous experiences or money memories that influence our perception of money, like how much we think we should make and how much we think we should save and all those little details. And couples typically don't talk about those things. They talk about the specific dollars and cents. They talk about the bills that are having to be paid and whether there's enough money for those or not. They might be talking about like, well, should I have a 401k or what should we do with that and how much should I contribute? They're talking about like the everyday practical stuff. They're not so much talking about their values, their beliefs, their fears, their money memories, their dreams, their goals, all those other things. And that's where couples can can be really disconnected and sort of moving in two different directions when it comes to their finances. The other thing that I see a lot with couples is um, not clearly deciding who is going to make financial decisions or who Mm. is going to be managing the money um, Mm -hmm. and what the roles are in the financial life that they share together. And that can cause a whole boatload of problems, as you can imagine. And it's important for both people in the relationship to take a very active, engaged role in that joint financial life. And, And that's something that I see women step out of far more often than men if we're looking at a heterosexual relationship because mm-hmm. there's like this really staggering statistic that 68% of women turn over financial decision-making to a male partner and that Oof. statistic keeps me awake at night. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Yeah, especially considering that women face some unique financial challenges that men often don't. Like they need more money to live off of when they retire because they tend to live about 10 years longer than men. Women tend to make less money during their earning years than men do. And they also take more time off work to raise children or care for um, aging family members than men do. So they need more money, they get paid less. And then we have 68% of women that are saying, well, I'm not going to be involved in the financial decision-making because I'm not good at math. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't trust myself to make good decisions. I lack financial confidence. So I'm just going to, you know, turn that over to my husband, my dad, my financial advisor, whoever that, that person is, which, you know, is very dangerous, for them to put themselves in that situation. So that's the other thing that I see comes up a lot with couples is not clearly um, deciding who's going to make the financial decisions, what's that's going to look like, what their roles are going to be, and how they're going to work well together so that they can both be actively involved in it. Yeah, that's so important. And, you know, we've heard so many horror stories in the media and throughout life of women 
kind of being screwed by their partners mm-hmm. financially, whether in a divorce or, you know, through hidden money or yeah. through many different situations. And it's like, you don't want to be in that situation. And even if it's not anything that's like calculated like that or clearly quote bad, mm-hmm. you don't want your partner to pass away suddenly yeah. and you don't have access to the accounts. You don't know where to look. You don't even know how much money you have. Exactly. You don't even know if you have an insurance policy or not. You don't want any of that. And so it's super important to be an active participant in the money relationship so that you know as a couple how much money we have, what are the resources that we're looking at, what protections are in place, and how can we navigate this together? And it sounds like a big issue, you know, with the spender saver type of thing is this idea of control. And I think a lot of people <laughs> wish they could control their partner, but definitely best to learn <laughs> that uh, we can't, right? <laughs> definitely uh, don't try to control your partner. Don't try to manipulate them into doing what you want them to do yep. because it won't work out people. Yeah. And that need Just for control, <laughs> that need for control comes from our underlying fears about money. So there again, there comes in this uh, inner work that we need to do. And Mm -hmm. the work in our own relationship with money, because we bring all of our money baggage into any relationship that we're in. So we have to work through that money baggage. We have to process that. We have to heal our own relationship with money before we can have this healthy joint relationship in our financial lives that we share with our partners. Yeah. I mean, I'm just remembering in my previous partnership, I wanted to control my partner and money so badly. And I'm ashamed to admit that, but I'm just being honest, but it took so much self work to realize that the core of that was, I wanted to control because I wanted to mitigate my own anxiety. Yeah. And once I realized, Oh, I'm doing this because I'm anxious about this outcome. And I feel like if I try to do X, Y, Z to control the outcome, then I can lessen my anxiety And once you come to that conclusion, A, you have to realize how can I sit with this anxiety myself and not try to control another person? And then B, once you sit with that uncomfortable emotion on your own, then you can make the decision, how do we move forward together as a partnership to do this? Or is this something I even want to tolerate or put up with? And you know, there was many complex situations that I don't want to get into with my previous relationship that ultimately ended. But through that dissolution of that relationship and through lots of inner work, mm-hmm. you know, coming to all of these gems of like, wow, like a lot of these desires to nitpick or control your partner have to do with your own internal anxiety. And then through lots of therapy, realizing. I have to take care of my own anxiety. I have to take care of myself. Yes. And also that's kind of a a deflecting maneuver too, because sometimes you really want to focus only on your partner. Yeah. Because it's too painful to focus on yourself. And so that's another big inner work thing where it's like, oh, you have to really sit with yourself. And then, like I said, if you do end up 
dissolving the relationship, then you're sitting with yourself anyway. Anyway, yes. Yeah. Blame is really convenient because it gets you off the hook. You know, if you yeah, blame somebody exactly. else, then they're the one that has to change. You don't have to do the hard work. You don't have to change. You're fine as you are. Um, so blame definitely serves that purpose. However, you can only do that for so long. And then eventually, you know, you have to have accountability and ownership for your own feelings and your own behaviors and really dig in there and get to the root of what's going on there. Um, And that's, I think, one of the things that makes financial therapy so different from, you know, working with like a financial planner or financial advisor or something like that, where, you know, that sort of work is really focused on what to do with money, Mm -hmm. how to plan for money, decisions that you make with money. But financial therapy is really doing that deeper inner work around money Um, really changing the thoughts and feelings that you have about money that obviously influence your behaviors and getting to the root of the issue. That's what therapy really is in general, right? Mm -hmm. Is like getting to the root (laughs) of the problem, not just managing the symptoms of it, but really digging in there and seeing what lies underneath the surface and tending to that and working through that. And that is not easy work at all. It is not easy work at all. And I've been in therapy for a long time on and off for half of my life and, you know, for three and a half years consistently and then on and off again for the past year, just as kind of maintenance with Mm -hmm. the same person. And I feel like I've reached like therapy (laughs) 2.0 and in the sense that like the initial part of therapy, it's so easy to be like, XYZ person caused my issues. They traumatized me. They hurt me. XYZ. I'm dealing with these issues. But then the 2.0 issues where you're like, oh my God, I enabled that. Yes. Or I allowed that to happen. Or what was I going through that made me do that? And that's like a whole different level of accountability and inner work because, yeah, like it's easy to go to therapy with all of these problems and, you know, my family, my, my partner, my blah, 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 mm-hmm. whatever they're, they're hurting me, they're affecting yeah. me. But then when you get to that deeper level of self-awareness and you have to really face your role in the situation, because it's always two to tango, mm-hmm. you know, not saying that you deserved any poor treatment and especially abuse, not saying that at all, but you know, kind of what we're willing to accept and tolerate and what was our role in that, that is the really incredibly painful part because when you perceive yourself as a victim, it's easy to be like, it's everyone else's fault. It's not mine. And that's a very comforting place to be at first. But then when you take that responsibility and accepting of your situation and think, what role did I play? And like I said, at first, it might seem like I did everything right. I Uh play a role. I I was well behaved. But then when you do the deeper work, you're like, wait, but I didn't speak up here. Yes. I didn't say anything here. I tolerated XYZ mistreatment, or I was desperate, or I was controlling, or I was too anxious. And really having to sit with those feelings. And that can be so 
jarring and uncomfortable and to be honest, an existential crisis because you view yourself completely differently. Right. Well, and I think that that's one of the reasons why women opt out of taking an active role in their financial life because they're like, I don't want to be held responsible if things go bad. I Mm -hmm. don't want to be the one that's accountable if we lose money or if we go into foreclosure or if we overdraw the bank account. Like I just want to take a hands-off approach so that it can't be my fault when things go wrong. And and that, I mean, that is obviously driven by fear, but it's also driven by a lack of confidence, you know, like that we don't have the ability to manage money well, or we don't have the ability to make good financial decisions, or we don't know enough about money. But when you when you say to yourself, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> hopefully yeah. that leads to like, okay, I need to gain financial literacy. I need to learn more about this. I need to educate myself and empower myself so that I can know more and I can make good decisions on my behalf. Because I'm of the opinion that everyone is the expert on themselves. No one knows you better than you. And no one knows your life better than you. And no one knows what you want for yourself better than you. So I get really upset when I see women being like, oh, I trust my partner to manage this stuff and make decisions on my behalf. Because it's like, well, how how can you be so certain that your partner knows you better than you know yourself or would do the things that you would want to do for yourself or that has the same hopes and dreams that you have for yourself and that they're making decisions that align with all of that. They probably aren't. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many assumptions there too. Like I'm assuming my partner is doing what's best for me, but maybe they're doing what's best for themselves. Right. Or maybe they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's a possibility too. Maybe they don't know more than you. But if you're not talking about money, you're not sorting that out, you're not determining who's going to do what and what your roles are going to be when it comes to being involved in your financial life together, then it kind of gets all swept under the rug and you're not even able to really have awareness about what's going on there or what needs to change. Yeah, so true. And I love that you mentioned that, you know, some women aren't interested in engaging with their finances because they want it to not be their problem. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also so relatable because, of course, we don't want things to be our problem. We don't want to have to deal with that. You know, like I said, blame is attractive when it's, oh, that's your problem. That's not my problem. That was your fault. But once again, with the therapy Mm 2.0, let's say something did happen in your relationship. Your partner squandered the money and you didn't know that was going on. Therapy 2.0, you would have to be like, I let that happen because I wasn't more active in that role in communicating and knowing what was going on. And so, yeah, we all have to figure out how to take some responsibility with our money, even within a partnership, especially within a partnership, because we're taking these two separate lives, two separate identities, two separate money stories, trying to create one partnered life. where the individuals are still on their individual paths, but there's points of intersection where you're walking the path together. And, you know, it's super important to keep your money aligned with your goals and in your relationship and communicate. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things that I spend a lot of time teaching students in my money therapy program is how to proactively have calm, productive money conversations with their partners, whether that be romantic partners, business partners, 
um, whatever that looks like, like whoever is involved in financial stuff with them, how to have proactive, comproductive conversations about money so that they aren't waiting for a financial crisis to happen, so that they aren't blindsided with information about how there isn't money or there's too much spending or somebody's taking money or they have nothing left or whatever that might be um, so that they can avoid that crisis. <laughs> they can mm -hmm. actively be involved and avoid that crisis because talking about money is not easy. I don't think it's something that comes naturally to us, especially women. And we are taught not to talk about it, that that's rude. It's impolite. It's invasive. Um, you know, don't even bring it up. And so I think there needs to be a lot of education and training and practice around communication skills and having these money conversations and managing the emotions that come up during them as well. And that's a lot of the work that I do um, in, in money therapy is helping people to learn these skills and practice them so that they can have money dates with their partners too, where they're having these conversations and they're being proactive and they're figuring out who's going to do what and they're planning their hopes and dreams around money and really working together as a team and holding each other accountable as they work towards their goals, but also talking about their values, their fears, their memories, their beliefs, because all of that, again, is what's driving the decisions and the behaviors. And so there has to be a deep mutual understanding about what that looks like for each person so that you can collaborate and have empathy and really be in union together as you are moving forward in your financial life. Yes, which brings me to my last question actually about, you know, how can couples work together as a team with their money and actually navigate conflict in a healthy way? Because conflict doesn't necessarily have to mean something bad. It can just mean a difference in values and a different in experiences. So how can we navigate that? Yeah. I think taking that same advice of, of having money dates, you know, where you're sort of looking at your finances, seeing what's going on there, schedule money dates with your partner regularly too, so that you are setting aside time consistently to have those conversations and to treat it almost like a like a business meeting. I guess it's more of like a money meeting than it is a money date because dates are fun and playful. Mm -hmm. And and this yeah. is more like business related, you know, where you prepare an agenda in advance and you write down some talking points, like concerns that you have or questions that you have. And it's more structured so that it can be really productive. And you, you want to have these conversations when you're already in a calm state, because what most couples do is they wait until things get heated and they have a full-blown money fight. And then they try to talk about money then, but your brain cannot be productive or problem solve when you are emotional. It just can't. It doesn't have the ability to. It's in crisis at that point. So by scheduling these meetings regularly and having these conversations when you're already in a calm, emotional state, that can make it more productive. And then you can have the information that you need and your questions answered and the plans made. And then it's like, you know, okay, what are we going to work on from now until our next money meeting? You have like action items that you can be doing. And then the next time you sit down and talk again, it's like, okay, what's your progress on these action items? Here's my progress. Here's what we've accomplished so far. Here's where we are in the process. And here's what we have to continue working on. I love that. And I think it's so important to schedule these ahead of time to avoid the money conflicts. And I totally agree when things are heated and you are activated, that is absolutely not the time 
to be problem solving and talking about money. And, you know, something that I learned in couples counseling is don't be afraid to say, hey, let's come back to this when we're calmer, maybe tomorrow morning, you know, let's set a time so it doesn't feel like someone's being abandoned or that someone's giving up or someone's not interested. Absolutely. But set aside a time when you know that you'll be calmer and that you'll have a night's rest and you'll be able to sleep on it. Because yeah, when you're in that state, that's when things get said that you can't take back Mm -hmm. and when fights happen and yeah, you don't want that. (laughs) Yeah. And it gives you time to figure out what you're really upset about too. Cause I think sometimes we just get upset and we don't know why what that's really about. So taking that time out and, you know, scheduling a different time that you can talk about it when you're calm also gives you time and space that you can really think about what it is that's bothering you and what needs to change to make that better. Like maybe it's something that you have to change yourself, not your partner necessarily. Maybe it's something that your partner can do to help create a change that feels better to you. Maybe it's something that you actively have to work on together. But we have to know first and foremost what it is that's upsetting us or bothering us, what that's all about before we can do anything about it. So to have that time to gain more awareness is really beneficial. That is such a good point because sometimes you're triggered from something from the past. It's not even something that your partner did. Yeah. And and having that time and space to be like, oh, I'm triggered because this reminds me of X experience or X person. It wasn't even. Mm-hmm this actual person, yeah, you know, and then you can have that awareness and be like, okay, this isn't even about this person. I'm not going to bring this to the table. And, you know, how can I work on regulating my emotions and myself and bring my best self to the table with these money conversations? Yeah. Cause financial trauma is a thing and that's a whole other topic for another day, but we all experience trauma in our life and financial trauma is one type of trauma. And we bring our feelings related to that trauma our trauma responses into our relationships, every single one of us. Yes. Oh, this has been such a wonderful conversation. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. So for people who wanted to work with you and check you out, where can they find you? Yeah. The best place to find me is my website, nicoleicavoni.com. And for anyone that is interested in learning more about money therapy and what that's like, and really just wants to start thinking and feeling differently about their money relationship, I have a really fun money therapy quickie class available on my website. It's a free three day class um, that gives them some quick wins and completely transforms their money mindset around their money relationship. So that is available for anyone who's interested in checking that out. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Check it out. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.